Good morning, church family. We're so glad you guys came and joined us today. I have, this is my treat this morning. Uh, I am so blessed uh, to have this next speaker with us. I will tell you that I actually got to know him through books. I read some books that he helped author. And then it turns out I was able to, he was the leader of a cohort at Western Seminary, which I was able to join. So I spent two years uh, of my master's program with him. And you know, four decades as a professor of theology at Western Seminary, so many other things, a speaker, a writer, and a consummate, just gracious, wonderful guy. Um, I actually truly, to use a Star Wars term, he's a true Jedi. He is a Jedi. Um, so I hope you would welcome him with me today, Dr. Gary Brashears. Thank you. Kevin. You missed absolutely the most important thing about me. I thought you knew me. You would introduce me as a happy grandfather. Gosh, I mean, that's, that's what counts. Yeah. No, I, Sherry and I have been married 55 years, and we've got two bio sons, four bio grandkids, two, of, two granddaughters now married this spring. We've got an adopted daughter, a sort of son, half a dozen non-legal kids and grandkids, not illegal, just to be clear. <laughs> non-legal, and about 30 bonus kids. Some people collect stamps, we collect kids. So good to be with you today. And Kevin is an awesome guy. He's so privileged to be a mentor of his during our time in, in the cohort. And what I want to do here is address a question that was very, very real for me growing up. I, my first day of life on this earth was in church and pretty much every day after that, I and I was a precocious math student, and at 14 I was in a geometry class, and I, at the same time I was learning how to prove stuff in geometry, which I loved. You know, theorems, hypotheses, logic, it was perfect. I found a verse in the Bible that said, prove all things, hold fast, that's good. And I said, that's it. Went to leaders of my church, in effect, and I said, how do you know, like, the Bible's Word of God, how do you know Jesus is God, and by the way, how do you know there is a God? And that crew at the church in Albuquerque that I was going to, in effect said to me, nice Christian boys don't ask questions like that. Well, I knew I was asking questions like that, so therefore I must not be a nice Christian boy, and it didn't bother me a lot, and I took my faith and dropped it in the trash bin at 14. Decisively rejected Christianity. If it's not standing up to the test of evidence, then it's not real. And the next four and a half years, I went looking for what we now call a worldview. I was looking hard for that. And I did what I, you know, I went firsthand to various religions, various philosophies, looking for something that would be a direction in life, because I can't just, I'm way too intense uh, to just slide through life. And I ended up with uh, Anne Rand, so you may know uh, her. She was real popular back in the 60s, Atlas Shrugged, Fountainhead. I had Who is John Galt sticker on the back of my little sports car. So you know what I'm talking about. And it worked. I mean, it totally made sense. Altruism is a sin. You're responsible for your own stuff. Don't help anybody else. And uh, I bought into that made complete sense to me. It was completely unlivable. And I began to decline into the despair. 
because I wasn't up to the job of God. And uh, I don't know if I would have killed myself or not. I was certainly thinking about it. And at 18, uh, we got a new pastor in our church, Kathy Thompson Kroll now. Uh, I tried my questions on her. First intelligent practicing Christian, young Christian I'd met. She didn't eke and run away. She engaged the best she could, turned me on to her dad, Richard Thompson, who turned me on to C.S. Lewis, who was wrestling brilliantly with the questions. I said, maybe there's something. And went back to primary documents, the Gospels, and read them, really read them. And my response is, man, this Jesus is amazing. Why didn't somebody introduce me to him? Because this was a fundamentalist church. What I put in the trash bin was fundamentalism. I just didn't know it. I thought I was putting Christianity there. And I came back to Christianity, deep, hard commitment, one o'clock in the morning, driving my little two-seater sparse car down Rio Grande Boulevard in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And God spoke to me and I made a deep commitment. But one of those questions I want to address today is, how do I know the Bible's word of God? How do I know it really is an authentic, reliable kind of thing? And there are notes for you in the room. There are notes in your bulletin. I'm going to fill in some blanks. If you like that, get the notes out. If you don't, throw the notes away. Don't do that. There's some good material there. Uh, but the first thing I want to do is say, what is the Bible? And so this is Exodus 14. And those of you who are Bible nerds know that Exodus 14 is after the time in Egypt. God has done the 10 plagues. They're out of there. As they leave Egypt, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we see you in Egypt? Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It'd be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Does that sound like anything contemporary? <laughs> and Moses stretched his hand over the sea. All that night, the Lord drove back the sea back with a strong east wind, turning to dry land, the water divided, the Israelites went through on the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and the left. The Egyptian pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And you know what happened there? Whoosh! Exactly. Exactly. So what has God done here? What has God done to his people, the Israelites? He's redeeming them out of Egypt. That's the first thing in this narrative we see about God. He is the God who redeems his people. And they get on the other side of the sea and they worship. Moses of the Lord sang the song, Lord, I will sing the Lord for his highly exalted both horse and driver is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength, my defense, a great worship song. He's become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. Who's leading this? By the way, I ask questions, you answer. That's what it is. Y'all online, you know, you ought to answer too, even if I can't hear you. Who sang this song? Who sang this song? Moses is leading the singing, and the Israelites are joining them. A little bit later, Miriam is now leading the song. And she sings along with the women, and the Israelites join in their leading, and they sing also this great song of worship to God. It's a great triumph God redeems. A few days later, they head out 
from there beside the Red Sea into the desert. This is not the desert of Sin, <laughs> desert of Sin, it's just a region, which would be in Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So they've gone from worship to grumbling. As I said, if only you died in the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat, ate all the food we wanted. You brought us into it to starve this entire assembly to death. How quickly they've changed in like five days. What does God do? Quail came, covered the camp. In that morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost to the ground appeared on the desert floor. Israelites saw it. They said to them, what's it? And that's the name of it. What do we call it? We don't call it what's it. What do we call it? Manna. That's what it means in Hebrew. What's it? Moses said to them, it's bread the Lord has given you to eat. What is God doing here? He is providing. We have a similar story with water. What's the first thing God does? You're supposed to say this. Redeems. I believe in recitation. It's a learning technique. That's why you get forgetting a professor to stand up here on your stage. So God does what? Redeems and provides. Good. They go a little bit further, and the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, if you remember a while back in south or northwest Mexico in the deserts, there were two vans, SUVs, of Mormon women and children. They were going to a wedding, and they were attacked by the Sinaloan drug cartel with machine guns, and they slaughtered pretty much everybody in the van. Now, that was a real thing that happened. The, the Amalekites are like what in that story? The Amalekites are like what? Sinaloan drug cartel with machine guns and all that sort of stuff. The Israelites are like what? Polygamous Mormon women in SUVs. Who's going to win that battle? Drug cartel, constantly. And Moses said to Joshua, get some guys, go out and fight the Amalekites. Joshua is thinking what? Fight them with what? You know, they got machine guns. In effect, we got a couple sticks. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. There's a stick that counts. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. The Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll. It's something to be remembered. Make sure that Joshua hears it because I'll... So he built an altar called the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi. God protects. So first God what? Second God? Third God? Okay. Now, the thing is here, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as some to be remembered. What do we call that? That's the Bible. That's the Bible. In Exodus 24, after God, they get the Ten Commandments, all that stuff, God calls Moses up on the mountain, and Moses then what? Wrote everything, wrote down everything the Lord had said. That's the Bible. See, Exodus 18 is the first time God commands anybody to write the Bible. Exodus 24, Exodus 34 is the commands to write the Bible. That's what we have. So what is the purpose of the Bible? The Bible is, a, and this is on your notes, uh, the Bible is a document written by people telling the story of God, acting in history to do what? Say it. Redeem, pride, 
protect. Yes, I want you to remember it. That's what the Bible is. All of the Bible, not just the story that Moses wrote down. And what God does through the Bible, what the Bible does is he invites people into a covenant relationship, like marriage, or like a patron-client culture, with rules of relationship, so we can have an intimate relation with him and be a people characterized by faithfulness, generosity, and justice. That's what the Bible is about. It reminds who God is and how to live in such a way that we can have an intimate relation with him. And there's always rules in a relationship. Now, you all paid attention. How long have you been married to Sherry? 55 years. Are there any rules in our relationship? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd not be together. One of the rules that I set up early well, no, let me, t one, one that I learned early, let's do it that way. Yeah, yeah, I did set up, uh, I did set up, but the one is important, what did I learn is, thou shalt not wake a sleeping woman. <laughs> it's, it's a deep rule, I mean, it's a very deep rule. And to this day, even when Sherry wants me to wake her up, it's really hard to do that. See, that's a rule of relationship. And in many cases, it makes total sense. Uh, so it's, I mean, those, that's rules of relationship. And what happens in the Mosaic Code is we have rules of relationship for Israel from Sinai to Pentecost. And in the Bible, we have rules of relationship. Love the Lord your God, serve him only. Treat each with kindness and generosity and faithfulness. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's rule of relationship. So here's the basic thing that I'm going to defend today. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are verbally inspired. That's technical terminology. Verbally means what? Words. Inspired means God helped produce those words by God. They are inerrant, another technical term. They are inerrant in the original writings and of final authority. There are other authorities in our lives, but the Bible is the final authority. So where the Bible doesn't speak, we're freer, where the Bible does speak, we're not free to ignore it. Final authority in faith and life, God's word is powerful to transform lives that receive this revelation by faith. That's what I'm gonna talk about here today. And there's a lot of things we could do, but that's the heart of it. The verbal, it's verbally inspired, it's inerrant, and it's a final authority. So let's unpack this a bit. First of all, inspired. Uh, it's a technical term, so we've got to define it. So when we say inspired, we don't mean it's inspiring necessarily, though I think it is. It's inspired means that we're saying that this is the work of God, where he providentially prepared and moved the, what goes in this next blank, the human authors. And so we say about verbal inspiration, what we're doing is we're talking about a cooperative work between God and the writers where he prepared them through life circumstances and his working in their lives in enabling to receive and communicate according to their individual personalities and styles. That's why there's so much difference among the books of the Bible. There are different circumstances, different people, and God gives his message in different ways. He gives individual personalities and styles the truth he would have his people know for his glory and human salvation. What does God want to know about himself? 
He wants us to know that God is what? He, come on, you haven't forgotten already, have you? He redeems, he rides, he protects. He wants us to remember it and live according to that. He wants us to be in a community that's characterized by faithfulness, love, joy, beauty, those kinds of things. That's what he did this. Now, the word inerrant. This is not a normal term. I would dump the term in a minute, it's double negative, not, not, it just, but I can't do it because if I'd say I don't believe in errancy, it means I don't believe this. What this is saying is the Holy Bible is wholly true. That's the heart of what we mean by that technical term, inerrancy. Inspired means God worked the human authors, so what they wrote is what God wanted to say. Inerrant means it's the Holy Bible is wholly true. That's the heart of it. Everything, and this is critical, everything it actually teaches is to be received as truth from God. Now, there are many things that are in the scripture that people quote that it doesn't actually teach. And that's the important thing. What I think the Bible teaches isn't inerrant. What I think the Bible teaches may be a lie. The trick is what does the Bible actually say? And understanding it, that's why you do Bible studies and reading it together down further in the handout, I'll say when you read the Bible well, you will read it in a community, preferably of mixed socioeconomic status, cultural background, theological tribe, and you all open the Bible and say, what does it actually say? And that will help you get what the Bible actually teaches. But it's to be received the truth from God, and critically, it speaks accurately in ordinary language. Now, ordinary language, because it's humans writing, it's not technical language. So, let's give an example. I started my life out as a math teacher and uh, the whole story behind that. But this is one of the math things in the Bible. It's an instruction about how to build the temple. So he made a sea, that's just a pot of water, of cast metal, it's round, 10 cubits from brim to rim, five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. So this is a picture of the temple, as you would envision, an open up kind of thing. This is Solomon's temple, and here in front of the door, is a molten sea. It's a cast metal, and that's where you do ceremonial washings before you do sacrifices and that sort of thing. So, math teacher, what is the value of pi here? Remember what pi is? Did you guys ever do that kind of thing? What is pi? Circumference divided by diameter is pi, right? So what's the circumference here? What's their circumference? Around is how big? 30. What's the diameter? What's the diameter? 10. So God says pi equals 3.000000000. Okay, that's what God says. Now, them ungodly scientists say it's 3.14159265358979. Who got it wrong? Who got it wrong? What do we say inerrancy means? What the Bible actually teaches is to receive truth from God. Holy Bible is wholly true. Now you say, it's not that big, it is a big deal. 
Because what you understand is, how does the Bible teach? And there's a different way. I said, the, when inerrancy, I said the Bible speaks accurately in what? What'd you write down there? Ordinary language. So ordinary language, I'm still deeply interested in science, though I don't do, I don't do that professionally. When I see 10, and I read it from a scientific mathematical perspective, I read in terms of significant digits, 10 is 10 plus or minus 0.5. That's ordinary scientific language. It doesn't mean 10.0000. It means 10 plus or minus 0.5. And 30 is going to be what? Is it going to be what? 30 plus or minus 0.5. And what you find, the difference between 3.0000 and 3.14159, it's well within the ordinary language. So who got it wrong? The one who says it must be precisely 3.0000. See, that's the thing. People read the Bible, they take what's symbolic or general language and make it precise. So Jesus said the mustard is the smallest of all seeds. True or false? Well, if you think of botany, it's false. Orchid seeds are smaller than mustard seeds. Is Jesus making a statement about botany? No, he's talking about seeds in Middle Eastern garden. So you've got to read it in ordinary language or you misinterpret the scripture. But what it actually teaches is truth from God, whether it's scientific or historical or religious. Why do we say that? Well, the Bible teaches it. From then so you know the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed. That's the word inerrance. That's the word inspiration. It's breathed by God. How much scripture is God-breathed? All of it. Old and New Testament, though Paul here is referring specifically to the Old Testament. And it is able to make you wise which is it's going to define what's good, bad, what's true, false, what's real, unreal, what's beautiful or ugly. God's going to define that in his scripture in many places, and we, that's wisdom. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So the summary I've written down in your notes, the entire Bible comes from God. It's useful for finding salvation, shows truth about God and life, correcting our misconception, showing how to live God's way then we can enjoy God's best for us. That's what I mean by inspiration. The Bible teaches it. Okay. Now, another passage, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 2 Peter 1, similar things. I'm just going to skip this for sake of time. It's in your notes. It's completely reliable. Prophet didn't come by prophet's own interpretation, but humans spoke by God as they were led. This is in your notes. So what we're saying here is all scripture is the voice of the spirit. What scripture speaks is speaking the very truth of God. That's what we're, that's what we're affirming here. Acts chapter 4, Sovereign Lord, this is a prayer of Peter. He made the heaven and the earth and see everything. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. See, that's talking about inspiration. Jesus, why do we believe this? Jesus believed and obeyed the Bible. To me, that's absolutely fundamental. The reason I hold the Bible at the level that I do as, a, as the final authority in all matters of faith and life is because of how Jesus treated the Bible. Now, we're going to give other evidence here, but this is number one. Jesus said to Satan, it is written and quoted it. 
He said to the people of the Pharisees who were warping the Bible for their own thing, uh, not one stroke of the Bible can be undone. Jesus believed it and lived it. And when the people accused him of sin, he said, where? He believed the Bible. And to me, that's absolutely critical because I'm be tied in with Jesus. It means I need to take the Bible seriously, I think. Now, how many of you know the term meta-narrative? You online, how many of you know it? Okay, uh, probably none. That means a big story that explains things. The Bible is a meta-narrative that gives excellent answers to the big questions of life. So a big question of life is simply, <laughs> why is there so much evil in the world? What's the biblical answer? There's a rebellion in the heavenlies led by a, a high-powered angel who rebelled and decided he wanted to be king, and we call him Satan or the devil, and he is the ultimate narcissist, and that's the origin of evil. If you take the naturalistic narrative that's part of our society, it's just evolution. Now, in evolution, how many lions are there in a 10-mile radius? How many lions? One. How come? There's supposed to be lionesses. Why is there only one lion? Because a big lion wins. Now, we look at power and oppression today, and we say that's evil, but if you take a naturalistic solution, it's not evil. That's just the way it is. And see, if you take the naturalistic explanation, the most powerful is going to crush everybody else and end of story. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way life is. thing is, get power and win. Do you notice that in some of the politics that are going on today? See, in the idea of kindness and gentleness, all people have equal rights, it's a Christian idea. We have a good answer for this. Roman historian, one of the best, any attempt to reject the Bible's basic historicity, even in a matter of detail, must be absurd. Why is that? He's comparing the teaching of the New Testament with Roman history, and it's all there. I could say a lot more. The Bible passes a criterion of embarrassment. <laughs> Think of politics again. If you want to win an election, what do you say about yourself? Come on, you've been following around. If you want to win the election, what do you say about yourself? I'm the best dude ever. What do you say about your opponent? He's a jerk, you know. Okay, now think of the Bible. Who's the big dog in Acts chapter 2 in the early church? His name is what? His, who's, the, who's the big guy in the early Acts 2 through 12? Peter. How does the Bible present him? Keek. He's the guy who denied Jesus in the high priest. I mean, he's with Jesus, but he's saying, I don't know him. Would a modern-day politician said, I deny my master the way Peter? Why does it say that? Because it's true. Who are the first witnesses of the resurrection in the Bible? Women. What would they do in a Jewish culture? That's embarrassing. Because in that culture, women were second-class citizens at best, and their testimony was not trusted in court of law. Why did the Bible have women being the first testimony of the resurrection of Jesus? Because what happened? There's more things we could say there, but there we go. Question. 
are the gospel eyewitnesses testimony or distant products of a game of telephone? Bart Ehrman, who's a famous critic of scripture, says, well, the gospels came down like telephone. Okay, how many played telephone back in the day? How do you do that? You have what, like 10 people in a row? What does the first person do? Whispers somebody in the ear. How many people hear what's whispered? Well, maybe the guy who's getting at his ear. And then he whispers what he heard, and it goes down 10 people. And what began is uh, Kevin Kersenob is a great guy, becomes what by the end? <laughs> Why is it? Because it's whispered quickly. Now, the real story of the scripture is not telephone. It's people proclaiming in front of eyewitnesses. And if you change the story, everybody says, wait a minute, that's not the way it happened. I tell the story regularly about how my now pretty wife manipulated me to ask her to marry me. I, I wasn't again the idea, to be clear, but she manipulated me effectively. March 1st, 1967, sitting in my little two-seater sports car after seeing a movie that touched deeply. And she used that moment to manipulate me, to, and it worked. <laughs> now, if I change that story significantly, I could get away with it here, but I couldn't get away with it in front of an eyewitness. I said, Gary, that's not the way you told it last week, and I sure couldn't get away with it in front of Sherry. It's eyewitness. Do we have the right words? See, this is critical. Do we have the right words? Bart Ehrman is fond of saying the Bible has 400,000 mistakes in it. That's like five times the number of words in the New Testament. Do you have the right words of the Bible? And here's the evidence. We have more than 20,000 handwritten manuscripts, Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, other ancient languages, translations, including almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts. And these manuscripts date back to no more than 100 years from the actual events the earliest ones. In addition, we have more than one million quotations of the New Testament by the church fathers. We have a huge amount of evidence. And what text critics, as they go through and they work these things out, most of the differences Bart Ehrman talks about is a difference of spelling or other things that make no difference whatsoever. And the outcome of this is what we call textual criticism is the New Testament is 99.5% textually pure. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt in any ways, and that's about 400 words that we're not sure what the original is. Now, this is New Testament. An example of a place where we do not know what it originally said is uh, Romans 5.1, where it says, since we're justified by faith, let us have peace with God, or we have peace with God. We don't know whether God, whether Paul wrote the indicative, we have peace with God, or the exhortative, let us have peace with God. What's the difference in meaning in those two things? Nothing. Even Bart Ehrman agrees, none of these changes affect the teaching of the scripture at all. Now, the things like the Lord's Prayer, our liturgical Lord's Prayer, the last phrase is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We know that's not in Matthew's text. That one we know is not in the original text. It's a fine edition, but it came in like 400s. 
So, there, and so we're saying we know what the original text was of the New Testament. The Old Testament, well, the question related to this, do we have the right books of the Bible? And there's an argument that uh, there's a whole bunch of suppressed gospels and there's a power grab by a bunch of white males to change the Bible. And the reality is the canonical books were immediately accepted by the church. It wasn't done by a council of Carthage in 397 AD. That's when the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, would begin to take power and they formalized with their own proclamation what the church had believed since the first century. So the 39 books of the Old Testament are accepted by all Jews and all Christians. And when I say all, I mean all. How many things do all Jews and all Christians agree on? Precious little. But all Jews and all Christians agree that 39 books of the Hebrew Old Testament are, should be in the canon. Now, the Apocrypha, and that's things like First and Second uh, Maccabees, Ecclesiasticus, are accepted by Hellenistic Jews and all Catholic today. So the Deuterocanonical books, and the thing is, there's nothing in there that's problematic, but in a, uh, they decide to go back and use the Old Testament that Jesus would have used, the Hebrew Old Testament. Same one you go, if you go to a Bible story today and buy a Hebrew Old Testament, you'll have the 39 books, not the apocryphal books, and that's a debate. But that doesn't change meaning of anything. Every branch of Christianity accepts the same 27 books of the New Testament. There's just no debate. There was a bit of debate, but no serious question about seven books called the Antilogomena because they weren't sure of the apostolic authorship. But the 27 books of the New Testament are accepted. What about the Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels? These suppressed Gospels, according to Lane Pagels or Dan, uh, uh, what's his name? The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, argued that these are suppressed. Well, there, we know about the Gospels. There are other Gospels. They're later, and here's one of those Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas. This is the very last saying. Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Okay, now Jesus is going to reply to this. What is Jesus going to say to Peter? There you go again, Peter. Like, fix your brain, dude. In the Gospel of Thomas, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling males, for every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why we don't accept the Gospel of Thomas. Because it's got garbage like that in it. See, it's not some white supremacist, male-dominated type thing. <clears throat> it's because it's not authentic to the Gospel. When somebody says, what about the Gnostic Gospels? Say, have you read them? And they never have. Say, get your phone out, let's take a look. Gospel of Thomas is the best known one. Read through, it's got some good stuff in it, but it ends like that. Okay. There's no evidence of a conspiracy by the church, none whatsoever, to impose orthodoxy. What about translations? What about translations? How many of you actually read Hebrew and Greek in here? 
I can't put my hand up. I can translate, but I can't read it. Okay. So I didn't do a good to say the originals or that. What about translations? I'm going to suggest you every translation is faithful present the truth, the original text, so that for all practical purposes, say of the Bible, this is the Word of God. Every translation that's a major translation, there are different levels of translations. There are some that are more, uh, well, let me do it this way. For serious study, what I suggest is to compare translations. One is formal equivalence. That's more word-for-word -word translation. And on your notes, I've got some examples. New American Standard, English Standard Version, King James, the Net Bible, New English Translation, New Revised Standard. Those are all word-for-word -word translations. Compare that with dynamic equivalence, which is more meaning-for-meaning. NIV, Christian Standard Bible, New Living Translation, a Comish English Bible, or the Message. And the message is really loose. That's Eugene Peterson's hippie language Bible. But he actually gets the meaning really well a lot of times, but his wording is a little quonky. So that's dynamic equivalence. Then read a Catholic Bible, coming from a different tradition, New American Bible or New Jerusalem Bible. Then a Jewish Bible, given different theological tradition, so Jewish Publication Society, the Common Jewish Bible, which is a Messianic translation, and if you possibly can, a language other than English. And by the time you compare these, you'll find some differences. Malachi 2.16 says, I hate divorce. And many people I know who have been unhappily divorced feel that God hates them because they're divorced, because of Malachi 2.16. If you read King James, that's what it says. If you read the English Standard Version of the NIV, it says God hates the one who does violence to his wife by divorcing her. It's poetry. There are different ways of translation. That's why you compare translations. Authority. I've got a whole bunch of stuff in your notes, a whole bunch of stuff in your notes that I don't have time to go through. It's a whole other sermon. What about the nature of the authority of Scripture? key thing is how do you read the Bible? And again, the way you must read the Bible to get it accurately is read it in a community. There's a place for personal reading too, but in community with different socioeconomic groups ranging from, you know, I'm upper middle class, read with somebody who's, you know, really poor. I grew up extremely poor. I thought everybody wore feed sack underwear back in the farm in Missouri. And I discovered, gosh, like they buy it from a store? Who could afford that? Well, mine are from the store, thank you. <laughs> but see, the thing is, when you have different socioeconomic groups, you see it differently. Different cultural groups. Ours is an individualistic culture, extremely individualistic. Go read it from a communitarian society, like the Arabic or some of the African societies. They see things differently. Read it from different theological tribes. Get some Pentecostals and some cessationists. Get some Calvinists, Arminians. Read them all together and see what the Bible actually says. That's the right way to do it. But what it speaks tells me how I must live my life. And that's hard to do because the Bible absolutely, absolutely is going to make life hard for you. Everybody. Everybody. Now, me being faithful in my life, is, my wife has never been a hard thing for me. But if I'm going to be really clear, I cannot have a romantic or sexual relation with anybody other than my wife. 
period. How does that fit with today's society? Oh, we fell in love. You're in sin is what you fell into. Now, there's a lot of complication there, but the Bible gives definitions of what's there. As inspired word of God, the Bible alone is final authority for our faith and life. When it teaches come with divine authority because it's a covenant document of God's redemptive relation with his people. Now, huge debate, huge debate, just came with the, the COVID mandates where the government said you can't meet together anywhere because of transmission of COVID. Huge debate, huge debate among churches, should we obey the government or not? And different people pulling out different things, and it's a huge fight. The thing that I didn't like is somebody who said, I know the Bible says submit to authority, but we think government is stupid, so we're going to not submit. That's going against scripture. Now, whether you should gather or not is a different question. When you say Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 said submit to the government, we think the government's stupid, so we're not going to do it. At that point, you're defying what Scripture says. That's the kind of argumentation that does not work. I can't say the Bible didn't understand my world today, so I'm going to do my world and not Bible. What the Bible says is true. It must be taken. And that, there's a lot more to be said about whether the church should gather or not. But how you treat the Bible is critical. To close up here, the Bible gives direction in many different things, but it does not give us direction at all in many things. It doesn't tell us who we should vote for in the next election. It doesn't tell us how many elders should be leading the church. Uh, it doesn't tell us what time to start our church service. Can you believe some churches actually start at like 8 o'clock in the morning? That's ungodly. How in the world do you get the cows fed? And see, the thing is, what the Bible prescribes, we must believe and do. What the Bible teaches, we've got to be careful what the, we understand what the Bible actually teaches, which means the whole Bible in canonical context. What the Bible describes, I think we should follow as closely as possible. So it talks about when you gather together uh, and do communion. I think every time we gather together, we should do communion. That's a description. I can't even get my own church to do that. We only do it the Baptist way once a month, which proves Baptists are stupid. <laughs> I'm an ordained Baptist, by the way. <laughs> but see, the thing is, what is authority? Descriptions. I think descriptions we should follow. But here's the key thing. What about when the Bible is silent? And the thing is, when the Bible is silent, he intends to give the freedom to be spirit-led and wise within the limitation of what Scripture says. That's a key question of authority, and that's where a lot of the debates come together. So a lot more to say. Invite me back, and we'll take you through authority. Holy Scripture to be believed as God's instruction, all that it affirms, obeyed as God commands, and all that it requires, embraced God's promise, and all that it promises. Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. I love it. I've got some resources in the handout. I'd encourage you to take a further look at this stuff. There's a lot of material. It's one of those critical questions because one of the gotta be's in evangelical Christianity, along with the Lordship of Jesus Christ, is the authority of Scripture to tell us what's good and bad. And that's what I think we should do. Why is that? Because the evidence is all in favor of it. And Jesus believed and obeyed the Bible. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you to care for us and about us. And we come to you in Jesus' name, saying, Holy Spirit, teach us. Show us those places where we are embracing our own perspective and not the perspective of the Lord of glory. Holy Spirit, show us those ways that we can become more aligned in our values and allegiances with who you are. And Lord, I speak to those who still have questions about Bible. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will empower them to explore carefully and thoughtfully, as I did back as a kid and have through much of my life, is this Bible worthy of all commitment? Holy Spirit, show us that's true and then show us how to live that to the sake of pleasing you and living together as a community of faithfulness and integrity. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.